Yeah, what a great text. It's my privilege this morning to share uh, in it with us. Uh, It may be no surprise to you, but uh, I'm not an athlete. (laughs) God didn't put me on this earth to to do sports or to be uh, overly active, but uh, it is important. But one thing, I I do enjoy sports, and I do enjoy watching professional sports. And one thing that uh, often gets, I find it curious, that if you watch sports on TV, uh, you never actually get to see what happens in the dressing room. You never get to see, other than the coach yelling to his players at the bench, uh, you never actually get to see what goes on in the dressing room. And uh, one, one sport I really enjoy is hockey. And in the Stanley Cup Finals, imagine Game 7, uh, you know, your two teams are tied, second intermission, third period's coming, they're all tied up, and they're just completely uh, both giving it their all. Chances are, though, the coach, while I've never been in one of those rooms, one of those dressing rooms, but I don't think the coach... Uh, begins to uh, ask for more time or ask to delay the game so they can go and practice, so that they can go and learn some new things and learn some new drills because they're not prepared. Uh, there's no time for that. They're in the middle of, of the action. That is kind of the pinnacle of hockey is being at Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Finals. And so this is not a time to learn new things, but it's to put into action the things that they hopefully have already learned, and they certainly would have if they've made it that far in the playoffs already that year. And so the coach will remind his players, quite simply, the things they already know, the things they've already been taught, and the things uh, that they're going to need to know, the things that are fundamental to success in hockey. And he'll tell them things like, we're going to have to pass, and we're going to have to uh, put more pucks on the net than them, and ultimately we're going to have to get just one more goal than the other team if we want to win this thing. And that may seem overly simplistic, but it's true. The players in that moment need to know what they already know. They need to be reminded and built up to do those things. And this is what we see here in the book of 2 Peter. And uh, quite frankly, in a lot of the epistles, these are letters or almost like sermons to churches in their own context spread throughout uh, the ancient world. These are letters from guys like Peter and Paul to build up the church in their own context, reminding them of the things that they already know, reminding them of the things that God has already made known to them so that they will thrive and that they will succeed and be able to stand firm when life gets tough. And so we've read this passage, I hope by now we're a few weeks in, I hope this passage, the first 15 verses of 2 Peter have become familiar to us. Uh, But in my translation anyway, the ESV, it doesn't read quite like a letter. Like I don't know many people who send me mail. I don't know anyone who sends me mail. But I don't know anyone who would send me mail who would write quite like this. And so uh, I'd like to read for us a paraphrase of the same passage. So it is from this passage, but it's a paraphrase. And I want you for a moment, if it helps, you can close your eyes and you can imagine uh, opening up a letter that you've just received in the mail. And I want to read this. Try this on for size. See how it fits. Our passage from this morning. So don't lose a minute in building on what you've been given, complementing your basic faith with good character, spiritual understanding, alert discipline, passionate patience, reverent wonder, warm friendliness, and generous love, each dimension fitting into and developing the others. With these qualities active and growing in your lives, no grass will grow under your feet. No day will pass without its reward as you mature in your experience of our master Jesus. Without these qualities, you can't see what's right before you, oblivious that your old sinful life has been wiped off the books. So friends, confirm God's invitation to you, his choice of you. Don't put it off. Do it now. Do this and you'll have life And you'll have your life on a firm footing. The streets paved and the way wide open into the eternal kingdom of our master and savior, Jesus Christ. Because the stakes are so high, 
Even though you're up to date on all this truth and practice inside and out, I'm not going to let up for a minute in calling you to attention before it. This is the post to which I've been assigned, keeping you alert with frequent reminders, and I'm sticking to it as long as I live. I know that I'm to die soon. The Master has made that quite clear to me. And so I'm especially eager that you have all this down in black and white so that after I die, you'll have it ready for reference. So Peter says, basically, these, these may be my last words to you. And so I want to make them count. I want you to overlearn the things that you already know. In other words, I, I can't stress them enough to you. And he gives us three main reasons for why he does that in verses 12 through 15. And they're quite simply this, is that uh, it seemed fitting Verse 12, he tells us that you're already doing these things. It's quite obvious that you already get it. You're established in them and you already know what you need to do. And the second is that uh, he, he has the chance. He still has time. And so he intends, by way of reminder, to stir up the church of Jesus Christ to do the things they already know they need to do. And the third is this, is that he wants it to continue after he's gone. It's not his legacy, but he wants the gospel to continue. And he says, this may be the last chance I have. And so, after I die, I want you to remember that it'll become second nature. This is kind of like uh, maybe in your family, you've got a, a, fa- a secret family recipe that no one really knows or has written down anywhere, but for some reason, it just stays in the family and maybe it gets even slightly sweeter or slightly better every generation. No one really knows how to make it except from tradition and from experience, and you learn what your mom or your dad taught you how to make, and you'll teach it to your kids. It's kind of like that where Peter says, even after I'm gone, I need this to continue. And so he finds it necessary to remind them what they already know. Uh, my, my son and daughter uh, are old enough now where they, they can ride scooters and bikes and those kinds of things. And so we've been spending more time lately at the skate park down by the beach there. And what I've come to realize as I'm supervising my kids and looking around at what all the other kids and teenagers and uh, grown men are doing on the skate park is I've learned that there's two types of people. There's, there's helmet wearers and there's non-helmet wearers at the skate park. And uh, my children, of course, are on the helmet-wearing team uh, because they know that it's a good idea, that it'll protect you. It's, it's, it's a smart thing to do if you're going to engage in these sports to protect your head. But I notice every time we go there, he'll ask, Daddy, why is that man not wearing his helmet? <laughs> uh, because he's an idiot, <laughs> is quite simply the answer. But I can't tell that to him. I need to explain it a little bit more that, well, for some reason, at some point, that man or that person or that girl decided for themselves that they no longer need to wear a helmet because whatever the reason might be. They've sort of outgrown, or at least they think they've outgrown, a basic fundamental truth that could possibly save their lives. It's not that, quite possibly, it's not that nobody ever told them or they don't know that wearing a helmet is a good idea, but they haven't put it into practice, and for one reason or another, something's dissuaded them or discouraged them. Maybe it's because it's not cool, or their helmet doesn't fit right, or whatever it might be. There's something that's preventing them from doing the very thing that could save them from a whole world of hurt. So what it makes me want to do is I want to, every time I go to the skate park, I want to set up a little, like a little lemonade stand, and I just want to clap for people who are wearing helmets, just because I want to build them up in the things that they already Uh, already know and they are already practicing but it makes me want to build them up and encourage them to keep wearing their helmet. I don't do that because it would be very very strange uh, and I might get asked to leave or escorted off the property but I don't do that but I feel like I should for my own kids sake so that they would see this kind of thing carrying on and so it is that Peter exhorts the church in things they already know because they're going to need it In the coming weeks, we'll look at uh, false teaching, false prophets coming up in the church. Peter is warning the church that's dispersed against those kinds of things. He's preparing them for the last days. 
And so uh, I have quite a task before me. Often I I try and preach one or two points. Uh, This morning I have eight. And so uh, fill up your coffee cup and buckle up because here we go. We're going to take a quick look at each of these qualities. And finally, the thing I want to do is to look at why. Why should we do the things that Peter is imploring us to do? So let's begin. It says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it's for this reason to make every effort... Peter starts off with supplementing your faith. Faith, at its most basic definition that I can think of anyway, is a dependency upon God. Faith comes down to a worldview. We all have a worldview, whether or not you're aware of it or you're even familiar with the term. But a worldview essentially is a set of lenses or a set of glasses through which you see the world through which you interpret all the things. And so to have faith is to have a, basically a, 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 a worldview that says there's a God, that there's more going on. And in the Christian church, my worldview is that all of this, all of Scripture, everything I know is true. That's my great hope, is that my hope, my faith is not in vain. And in the meantime, I'm going to be obedient to what God says because I believe it to be true. I've seen it to be true. And you don't have hope in something or faith in something that you can already see. Listen to this from Romans chapter 8. This is about the future glory while we wait to be adopted as sons and daughters by God. Romans 8 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So your faith is your patient endurance, your patient waiting for God, for God's promises. You have hope in the things that you can't quite yet see, but we have glimpses of it. God's given us everything we need in his word, and our faith is what keeps us standing firm. This isn't merely theoretical knowledge that we just understand and compute and can register, but what Peter asks us to do is to supplement your faith. Don't just sit there with all your Bible answers, but you need to do something. Your faith should spring you into action. Don't sit there and daydream and theorize and put it all together and get all the answers, but you need to put your faith to work. That's one thing I love about the Christian faith is not only does it work in the sense that it's rational and it's coherent and it fits and it's a system and it makes sense, but the Christian faith works in the sense that it's put into action. Things have been done for us, but it calls us to something greater. So, Peter tells us to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue. And in the paraphrased version that I read, virtue is described as to make generous provisions of moral excellence. In other words, be, be a good person. Be the kind of person that you would want to be around. Have good character. Because this is proof on the outside of what's taken place on the inside or what's happening inside of your heart. There needs to be congruency between what you know in your heart and what you believe in your heart and what your hands do and what your mouth says and where your feet go. There needs to be congruency and integrity across all areas of life. And that starts with virtue. That the gospel work in your heart is doing what it should in every area of life. Our culture is very much a Google culture where if you're not sure about something, all you have to do is Google it. So you might be thinking about getting a plumber into your house or going to a new restaurant. And the first thing you do is you Google it to see what other people are saying about it. We have websites like like Yelp where you can basically give it a star rating. One, two, three, four, five. Based purely on your experience. doesn't matter what that 
businesses or companies' business model is or how good they are for the economy or the fact that they use sustainable resources or whatever it might be. All those things are irrelevant when it comes to leaving a review because a review is based on the customer's experience of, of the product and of the service. And so a review really is what other people are going to see. It doesn't matter if you have all the Bible answers or if your theology is right in line with where it needs to be, but the desirable qualities need to manifest themselves, which become an evidence of a heart that seeks after God. If you can imagine a sponge being wrung out, whatever water that sponge is in, will, will, it'll be obvious. You don't even need to see the water. You just need to squeeze out the sponge. You just need to wring it out to see what's inside. The sponge might be hiding the kind of water that's in it, but when it's pressed and put under pressure, that water begins to come out. And so virtue, therefore, is not about uh, merely doing, merely doing good things, but it's about being. It's about being transformed. Not just doing good things or obeying all the law, ticking all the boxes, but about being transformed. So we have supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. I, I like knowledge. <laughs> I learned as a kid that knowledge is power. And it's true. But knowledge that isn't for anything is just data or just information. If the knowledge of your faith and of your salvation just remains head knowledge, that's not helpful. Our knowledge should be an increasing understanding, yes, of our salvation, how you were saved, how God works, yes, absolutely. But it needs to be more than that. It can't only be that. This knowledge needs to work itself out in wisdom, godly wisdom, godly discernment, godly character. I remember when my wife and I, before we had kids, we were expecting our first. And uh, it was great. We were, ex- we were excited. We decided that we needed a bigger place. We were living in a basement at the time. And we decided we need a place with two bedrooms so that you know, our baby can have their own room. And we needed a crib. And we needed a car seat. And we needed all these things. But you have nine months to prepare with the knowledge that a baby's coming. And I think we did fairly well, but something incredible happened to me as we got into the final weeks and especially the final days of when the baby was actually due. And that is that the knowledge that we were going to have a kid in our home actually sank in and I realized that I'm going to be a dad. My wife kind of makes fun of me to this day about it. I I think it's very noble of me. But my wife says I went into a, she calls it Papa Bear mode. Um, Things I had never thought of before suddenly became important to me. Not only did our baby need a place to sleep, but I, I realized that if something happens in our home, I have no way to put out a fire, a literal fire. I went out and bought a fire extinguisher because the knowledge of now we have, we have another life to care for changed me. Uh, I suddenly decided that our car needed, we needed new tires because if I was going to drive around with, with this new baby, we need to be safe on the road. I started to do all these things, but it's because in those final days and weeks, the knowledge of, yeah, we're having a baby, that's great. We have all the gifts, we have all the stuff, we have all the stuffies. It actually sank in and, and it became real to me that we are having a child and he will be ours. And so knowledge has to be for something. Otherwise, it just remains information. There should be some kind of fruit, some kind of labor, some kind of evidence or proof. In verse 8 of our, of our passage that we're looking at in 2 Peter 1, Peter says that this certainty will prevent you from being ineffective. In other words, that there should be some process, some manifestation of this, of this virtue working itself out. Other places in the book of Galatians, it's the fruit of the Spirit. 
There should be proof. Jesus says that you'll know a tree by its fruit. It starts from a knowledge, but not merely a knowledge, a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge with an outworking into action. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Which can't merely remain head knowledge or just information. But to understand what the will of the Lord is means you act on it. It means that make, you make good use of the time is what the Apostle Paul goes on to say. Because the days are evil. The days are numbered. The will of the Lord is that you, you work. You put your faith into practice. It's a connection between the head, the heart, and the hands of your faith. There we are. We're at the fourth one. Faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. Which really, in the paraphrase we, version we looked at, there's the word alertness. Self-control is about alertness towards the things that, you will, that will pull you away from God. You will have desires. We have desires. And they're not all bad desires. We live in a world that constantly pulls and vies for our attention and our appetites for things. But I don't think it's too simple to say that there's two kinds of desires. One that will either draw you closer to God and others that will pull you away. You could pretty much divide any kind of thing you could ever want into two categories. It's either going to help you in your faith or it's going to pull you away and make things harder for you. Uh, we, we do a lot of driving as a family and uh, we've got our, our minivan and it's full of car seats and all this stuff and we got fill it with bags and we go places uh, on vacations. But on the way, uh, we, we're, we're a snacking family. We like to have snacks. And uh, for me, when, I'm, when I feel like I've had my fill of whatever's on the console, I'll ask my wife, honey, could you please... Uh, Wrap that up and put it away. And she'll say, Andrew, you need to have self-control. And my response is, you're my self-control. I would like it if you could wrap up the bag and put it away. Otherwise, I'm going to look at those things. They're going to look back at me, and I'm just going to put them away. I'm just going to eat them all. And her response is, no, you need self-control. But for me, that, that, you need to get those things away from me. Let's wrap them up. We'll put it in the glove box. We'll lock the glove box, and we'll throw the keys away. In fact, it's better for us if we don't even buy those things from the store. That's a good way to keep me from losing my, my, uh, my wits about me when it comes to snacking. Otherwise, things will get out of hand. But that's a helpful image when you think about the things that are going to tempt you, isn't it? How close to those things, how proximate are they going to be in your life? Are you going to flirt or, or, or be nearby the things that you know are going to tempt you? Like for me, I know the bag of Doritos on the console is going to be a tempting factor for me. But if I buy them and open them and put them on the console and go for a drive, I'm just making it harder for myself. So in your life, where are you putting, how proximate are you putting the things that you know are going to tempt you? Here's what James says in James 1, that temptation never comes from God. Temptation comes from your own sinful desire. And temptation in and of itself is not a sin, but temptation, when you let it grow, when you let it germinate, takes root and becomes sin when you act on it. And sin, when you act on sin, and, and that persists, sin, when it has fully grown, manifests itself in death. Or the great Proverbs 25, so beautifully in verse 28 says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Sin is like a spiritual sort of hurricane that will just blow through the city. Wipe out its walls, leaving it completely defenseless and exposed for oncoming attacks of the enemy. Is that what you want? 
Do you want to see how close you can get to the things that tempt you? Or do you want to get rid of them completely and have nothing to do with them? The reality is we live in a world where sin is everywhere. Sin's on almost every app you probably have on your phone, or at least not far from those apps. It's in the grocery stores, it's on the magazine covers, in the checkout. It's all around you. It's on the TV commercials. It is everywhere, looking to devour and destroy everything in its path, leaving city walls torn down. But self-control not only is knowing how to respond in those things, but it's being disciplined, rather, and alert of those dangers. This is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't just pray to God and say, God, although I do believe God could do this, don't hear me wrong, but self-control doesn't just happen in a moment, but it's a training. It's a regular discipline to grow in these areas of self-control with Christian maturity. That even your desires would be submitted to holiness. The things that you desire most would draw you closer to God. It says this in Psalm 27. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that true of you? Do you desire anything else besides God? I know I do. I'm tempted to anyway. My flesh and my heart may fail, and they do, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So self-control starts by doing away with sin. Have nothing to do with it. Get it away. Put it in the glove box. Lock it up. Throw the keys away. Flee from sin. Supplement your self-control with steadfastness is our next one. Uh, Eugene Peterson is, is a pastor uh, and an author, and uh, he's, he's passed away, but uh, a very influential preacher, teacher. He wrote a book on discipleship, and I think the same can be said of steadfastness. The title of his book is, it's, the title is this, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Discipleship is long obedience in the same direction, and I think the same can be said about steadfastness. It's a long road. Life is a grind, and the Christian life is certainly no exception. Life is challenging. But steadfastness is obedience over the long haul in the same direction. It doesn't require perfection of any of us, but it's a constant obedience in the same Godward direction. Peter's audience here, as Paul reminded us, Paul Hawks, not the Apostle Paul, but just a moment ago, Paul Hawks reminded, of, reminded us of, of the, the readers, the first recipients who tore open that letter and, and, rip, and ripped into this, this letter. Um, we're living in a very, very accommodating world to sin. Very progressive, very, very increasingly liberal in this Greco-Roman world. They were making many accommodations for sin. And if you were a first century Christian living in, this, uh, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, it, it would have been difficult To stand firm in your faith would have been no easy task. There was political forces coming against you. There was cultural forces. There was was this encouragement to to be free, to do what you want, and certainly to serve man and not God. And I think the same can be said true of, of our world, the world we live in, that's increasingly accommodating to sin and to things that are absolutely contrary to Scripture. And so this isn't a, oh, by the way, if you encounter trial or if you encounter difficulty, but rather when. Trial and challenges can take the form of physical persecution, absolutely. There are brothers and sisters all around the world who are physically 
persecuted for their faith, imprisoned, beaten, killed. But it isn't only that. Trial, temptation can take an emotional uh, manifestation, a spiritual one, where there can be pressures, political or otherwise, social, pressures to conform to the patterns of this world. I heard it described recently to me that Religion in our increasingly liberal world is treated a little bit like, like cigarette smoke in, in a public place. Where it's okay if it's, you know, nine meters away from any door and you're only with the other people who are smoking tobacco. And it's okay if it's over there, not near any doors where it'll have any kind of impact on anyone else. You just, you just keep it over there. And I find our world is treating religion, and particularly Christianity, that same way. You want to be Christian, you do you. That's fine, just don't impose any of this on me. But let me ask you this, when things come to a head, when your Christian faith, when the knowledge and understanding of what God is doing and will do in your life, when all of that gets pressed, when things come to a head in your life, who will you please? Will you please God? Or will you please man? One of those options is certainly easier than the other. There's pressures all around us to conform, to, to sign here, to give the, give, give the nod to this particular idea or pass this bill, which slowly takes steps further and further away from how God would have it. But here's what steadfastness creates and builds up in you. It allows us to call to mind the things that you know are true, to hold fast and to stand firm on the doctrines of God. And because of God's sovereignty and God's grace, we believe we can have faith and confidence that God is actually working in and through these systems. I don't have all the answers. I don't know why we are where we are. I don't love every politician I see. It doesn't mean you have to, but it means that you can see beyond all of those things and your obedience over the long haul is Godward. You can patiently endure whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever temptation you're going through with a steadfast heart. Here's what the Apostle Peter says one book earlier in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen, if you're going to go and be a thief and be a, be a crook and all those things, Peter says, that's on you. Anyone can suffer for doing evil, but if you suffer for righteousness' sake, it is a blessed thing. The Spirit of God is with you because on the other side of, of trial and of death is a great reward. The reward is life. And so you can stand firm on what God has to say, not what's popular, not what will be the path of least resistance. Here's a few examples. Uh, our world has something to say about the sanctity of human life. What does the Bible say? And what does that mean for issues of things like abortion or gender identity or doctor-assisted suicide? The Bible has something to say about God's intention and his purpose behind marriage. What does that that say for you in your marriage, of your sexuality, of your purity, whether you're married or not? God has a purpose for marriage. The world has its own purpose. Or what about this? The, the, The government tells us their function and their role. But the scriptures also tell us the function of of role and government and leadership. And it has something to say about how we pay our taxes, how we submit, whether or not we submit, if and when civil disobedience is permissible. 
Do you know these things? Do you know what the scripture says on these matters? Have you wrestled with them? Do you know which, who you'll obey when, when things come to a head, when you're pressed? Will you please God or will you please man? And I think the prayer of the Apostle Peter here is that the cost, whether it's a job or a friendship or a relationship or it's your reputation or your job or that funding or maybe whether you get that acceptance letter or not, but the prayer of the Apostle Peter is that it will be worth it. Obedience to God will always be worth it. You will never be disappointed because the inheritance that awaits us is undefiled. It's unchanging. It can't be taken away from us and it is worth it. Supplement your steadfastness with godliness. You need to serve God like you belong to him. We know we belong to him. That's been well, well introduced to us. Last year as a church, we went through what's called the New City Catechism. It's a series of every week we looked at a question that had to do with theology and life and faith and then what the answer of it is from Scripture. And on the very first week, the question we looked at is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer from the book of Romans is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. We're His. Peter tells us in our passage that His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to to life and godliness. You've already been given what you need. You are a child of God. You need to act like it. A theologian by the name of Louis Burkhoff on, on, the, issue, on, on the, the idea or the, the understanding of sanctification, which is a, a journey of godliness, says that it's complete and divine. It's a complete and divine grace of God. It's a work of God, but it's a work in which man nevertheless cooperates. You're being renewed, you're being saved, you're being made new by God's grace alone. Yet, the invitation and the expectation is that you would cooperate in that process, that you would train yourself to disciplines, to godliness, that there would be a devotion and submission to God and his authority over your life. Godliness. The second to last is that you would supplement godliness with brotherly affection. And on this, I I would say if you love God, if you love Jesus, if you hold Jesus high, you'll hold the church high. You'll hold your brother and sisters with high regard. If if you're in the market, if you're uh, dating, looking for a a prospective spouse or partner, let me give you a, a little suggestion. If you think you found a candidate, I suggest you... Go to, go to their turf. Go to their house. Go to their family's house. See how they interact with their siblings, their brothers, their sisters, their parents, their neighbors. Look how that person, he, he or she, lives their life with the people that they're closest to. They share the same genetics as these people. How does he or she treat their family? Do you know that the church of God, our church, the collective church of God, they're your family? And so often there's things that divide us We attend church and we have our own thoughts on, you know, the quality or whether the volume is too loud or the songs were good or we liked the sermon or we fell asleep during the sermon. Whatever. We we attend church like like, like it's a buffet or a service, you know. No pun intended, but we attend it like it's there to serve us. But brotherly affection or brotherly love seeks the good of our brothers and sisters, the building up of the church of God, the fellow believers, the family of faith. Seek peace with your brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them on everything or you have to prove who's right or who's wrong about this text or that text. 
Have those conversations. Study them. But remember the things that you need to hold on to and the things that you can let go. Seek peace and unity, not division. That together with a great deal of humility, we would learn what it looks like to follow Jesus together well. If ever before, now more than ever, let's learn what it means to follow Jesus well together. That's brotherly love. And finally, supplement brotherly love or brotherly affection, depending on your translation, with love. Which by definition is others-oriented. You can love a thing, but in this context we're talking about love for other people. Your love works itself out like virtues or knowledge. It works itself out in some kind of way. But who do we love? How do we love? The word is agape, which is this unconditional type of love. A righteous man came up to Jesus in the book of Luke, chapter 10. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, "Uh, Jesus, what must I do to live forever? What must I do to inherit eternal life, as, as you speak of? And Jesus answers the question with a question. He says, well, what do you think, righteous lawyer? And he replies, and he, he, he gets an A+. Plus. He just hits it out of the park. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right. Go and do likewise. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer should have stopped here. He should have just walked away, but he didn't. It tells us in Luke's gospel, desiring to justify himself or to stick out his chest a little more and look a little bit more pious and a little bit more righteous, he presses Jesus a little farther and he says this, and who is my neighbor? Hoping that he'll just get another A on the test. And he doesn't get the answer that he was expecting, I don't think. Jesus then tells a parable as he often does. And he tells a parable about a man it's not a real story, but he, he tells this, this parable, this, this story to prove a point. And he tells the story of a man who goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the road's a little rough. He's going through the ghetto, he's going through the hood, and he gets beat up by a bunch of robbers. And he gets left for dead on the side of the road. They leave him, they leave him high and dry and, de- and left for dead on the side of the road. And then down the road comes a, a priest or a pastor along the way, but he's got places to be. He, he's not ready to get his hands dirty, so he, he walks around. And carries on his way. Pretends to not notice the man. Next, a Levite walks by, who also is a, is a church leader. A leader in the temple who looks after some of the ceremonial responsibilities. A Levite, same thing. Surely if a priest is too busy, at least the Levite would help. No, the Levite does the same thing. Walks by the other side of the road. Ignoring this man. And you know how the story goes. The Good Samaritan. We, have a, we even have a law in our, in our, in our uh, society here. The, the Good Samaritan law or the Samaritan law. Samaritans, by the way, weren't highly thought of by, by Jews. They, they, they were at odds with one another. They were unclean. They were sort of out there. Samaritan walks by and it says that he had compassion on the man. And he picks the man up and he throws him on. He, he dusts him off. He cleans his wounds throws him on his donkey and takes him into town and he withdraws two days wages and brings him in to be cared for and says, look after this man. I've got to go, but I'll be back. And when I come back, if you spent more than the money I've left for you, I'll pay it in full. A Samaritan cares for this man. Jesus then turns the question, the, the, the story, he puts a spotlight back on this, this lawyer and says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man? Which of these three loved the man? 
And I, would, I think if, if, he, if, if he had a tail, it would have been tucked between his legs and it, his ears would have been low and he would have hung his head a little bit. And he answered very sheepishly, the right answer, he got it right. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. A Samaritan, see, we, we don't gasp when we read this story, but you would have gasped to hear this story that a Samaritan would help somebody. A Samaritan had compassion and proved to be this man's neighbor. You see, I don't know about you, but I like people who are like me. <laughs> Probably because I like me, and I like people who like the same things as me, people who think like me, um, act like me, are interested in the same things as me, who talk like me, who, uh, who smell like me, who enjoy the same foods as me, who spend their time doing the same things as me. I like those people. It's easy for me, and it's probably easy for you to spend time around those people. But who's your neighbor? Jesus blows the walls off, off of those categories and says your neighbor is, is everyone. You and I don't get, we don't have the privilege or we're not in a position to put prerequisites and parameters around that idea of who's our neighbor. It isn't just the people who look like us. It isn't just the people who believe the same thing as, as us. It isn't the same people who think like we do on these polarizing conversations now, maybe more than ever. People who find themselves in different political camps, theological camps, income tax brackets, what have you. Jesus breaks down those walls and says the neighbor of this man is the one who showed him mercy. Go and do likewise. It's not for you and I to say. Supplement your brotherly affection with love. Let me ask you this, as, as we close, let me read the list again. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Does this sound like anybody you know? I'm not talking about me or anyone you know. This sounds to me like Jesus. I don't know anyone who's fulfilled or complete in all of these areas but i do know jesus and i know jesus has come to fulfill all of these things you see god asks us to do this through the apostle peter by the holy spirit encourages us fans the flame in us to be like this because that is who jesus is that is who god the father is at the beginning of the service, we looked at Leviticus 20. All throughout the book of Leviticus, all throughout the law, God interjects periodically and says, this is what you should do because I'm the Lord. Period. Be holy because I'm holy. You're mine. This is how I want you to act. Don't be like the cities and the nations that you're wiping out. Don't be like them. I've set you apart. I've chosen you for holiness. You see, we're God's. We're not gods, but we are gods with apostrophe. We belong to God. Be holy, for I am holy. These characteristics, these qualities, describe holiness. Set-apartedness, if that's a word. God wants us to be like him. We are his children. One, one book earlier, the Apostle Peter says that we're a royal priesthood. We've been chosen. We've been elected as God's children that we would look like him. You probably have things in your family, rules or customs, or growing up at least you would have. Things that were unique to your family because that's just who you were. We're, you know, we're the Smiths, and this is how we do things. I bring back my neighbor's wheelbarrow cleaner than when he lent it to me because we're Smiths and that's what we do. 
We have a practice. We have a custom because this is who we are. This is what we do. You see, you and I are gods. We belong to him. This is what we do. This is how we act. Therefore, that's why Peter says, make every effort. God's done it for you. He's equipped you. He's given you everything you need. But the onus now is on you. The expectation is on you to make every effort. Not sometimes or not when you had a really good night's sleep and you're feeling good. But make every effort at every point to supplement your faith with all of these things. To pray as though the gospel depends only on God, which is true, it does. To pray that way and to believe that way, but to work and live it out as though it depends on you and on me. Live as though it depends, pray as though it depends on God, live and work as though it depends on you. I think it's fitting to close with Jesus' words to his hearers, to, to the earliest early church, and to us as well in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why, you might ask? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, this world's not ours, it's God's. We're not ours. We belong to God. Father, I'm so thankful for your love and for your grace and the fact that you in your mercy and grace and love, have called us out of darkness into light. And God, you haven't just done that and given us a long laundry list of things to do and to be. You haven't abandoned us and left us to our own devices, but you supply us with everything we need so richly, with love and mercy and grace and wisdom. Father, help us to be as, as believers, individual believers, but also as the church, Lord, to be what it is you would call us to be. Help us in that, I pray, that we would know that we aren't ours, but we're yours. This world isn't for us, but it's for you. God, I love you, and it's in your name I ask all these things. Amen.